Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When I was little, we were all told how it goes. When two people love each other, they get together and they make a baby. But then we all learn that quite often, they just can't. And that's very sad. Now, many couples of all sorts turn to IVF treatment, which is improving every year. But as the technology becomes more effective, it can create some unlooked-for consequences. It introduces this element of time that you can conceive embryos that are not gestated for maybe 10 years A lot can happen during the time the embryos are in the freezer. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, IVF, fraud and unwanted children. I'm Jenny Kleeman. I present Times Radio Breakfast at the weekend with Luke Jones. And I'm also an investigative journalist. And investigations, they take quite a lot of of effort and time, don't they? They do take quite a lot of effort and time. You have to be quite nerdy and be very interested in the details. But the more you do them, the more people come to you with stories. And that's that's what certainly happened in this case. Before we get into the body of this, can you just summarise very quickly what today's podcast is about? This story is about what happens when you don't have proper conversations when you embark on fertility treatment. And it's about fraud, essentially. And I'm interested in this because I've made a podcast about a Dutch fertility doctor who, without his patient's knowledge or consent, used his own sperm to make his patients pregnant. And in fact, there are over 75 people in the Netherlands right now. and He's their biological father. And in fact, what happened was I I did that podcast and then all of a sudden lots of people started coming to me with their extraordinary stories about how they had been defrauded or lied to in fertility treatment. And it's a kind of, it's an area that I'm really interested in because I like looking at ethics and technology. Let's get into the story now, Jenny. You have been talking to a chap who you have called Chris Dawson. I can hear you now. Can you, can you hear me? I can hear you and I can see you. Can you see me? I can. To protect his identity, we haven't used Chris's voice. His words are being spoken by a producer. Everything's perfect. How are you? Yeah, very well and frustrated. I don't know what's, what happened. I was, you know, I've been using Zooms uh, very often, but yeah, don't know, using it, don't know what happened there. Chris Dawson got in touch with me. That's not his real name. As it will become clear, he, he didn't want me to use his real name. He was a British guy. He's in his mid-50s now and he wanted to let me know about something that happened about 10 years ago. He was married to a Swedish woman who I've called Eva and they were living together in Sweden. They'd had a tough time building a family together. And then we did IVF I think three or four times. Um, We never had a proper pregnancy coming out of it. I think a couple of times or well most of the times there was not enough good quality eggs to make an embryo with my sperm. 
Eva had had some fertility problems. It caused them a lot of anguish and heartbreak. Maybe she was pregnant once or twice. Um, I can't really remember. I know it sounds terrible. Eva is one of those people who is just a doer, who solves problems. And this was one problem that she really couldn't solve. They had had difficulty conceiving, hadn't they? Can you take us through that? When they got married, they assumed that they'd have children. She very much wanted to have children. They tried for, for about a year and a half without any success. Then they had some investigations. They found out that she didn't have enough eggs that were good enough quality to conceive naturally. So they had thought about adopting, but in the end, they heard about egg donation. And in those days, egg donation was not available in Sweden, but it was in Finland. Egg donation is illegal in Sweden when they were living, but they knew that they could travel to Finland and have fertility treatment in Finland. They found an egg donor there and they had had IVF using eggs from a donor and Chris's sperm. There had been several embryos which they had frozen at this clinic in Finland. So to be absolutely clear, the eggs were not Eva's. They were from a donor. The sperm was Chris's and yes. they created several fertilised eggs from the stock. Yes, they did. They had chosen, and this always really interests me, they had chosen a donor that looked like Eva. And when I asked Chris, why did you pick someone whose looks matched Eva's? He said, well, I think we were probably maybe quite flippant about it, blasé about it, when we talked about the kids and said, yeah, 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 we'll tell them about that, of course. You know, we'll find a nice opportunity to tell them or something without really thinking too much through in, in detail. We always said that one day we would, but we didn't really think through when we would tell people what we want, wanted people to know. We thought it would just be convenient for the donor to, to match Eva in terms of looks. But in any case, Eva has to carry the eggs to term. She's the person who gets pregnant. It's not a surrogacy. Yes, yes. They have one child using this process, and they then have a second child using this process. Yes, they do. And I think they found it quite difficult, all these rounds of treatment. It took its toll on their relationship, the way Chris describes it, that after their second child, things really began to deteriorate. And I think our relationship was just getting more and more difficult during that time. Yeah, and we were talking less and less. And of course, we had two small kids. Their marriage began to falter. And then at this stage, Eva still wants another child. Is that right? Yes. So they had had a letter from the clinic in Finland telling them that they needed their permission to move them to another storage facility. And it kind of prompted discussions about what to do with these leftover embryos. And these are things that anyone who has IVF has to think about because it's quite likely that there will be more embryos than you need to make a family. And you have to decide what to do with the ones that are so to speak, left over after you've had fertility treatment. And this letter had prompted them to discuss what they wanted to do. And Eva wanted to have a third child. And Chris definitely didn't want one. He was in his 40s. He felt he would be too old to be a father for a third time. He was happy with the two kids that he had. I think we probably had that conversation a couple of times where she said, well, I think maybe we should, you know, have a third kid. And I'm like, nah, I think, I think we have enough on our plates right now. We're just trying to keep the relationship together, yada, 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 you know. He was already exhausted from having two children. Two was enough. And he thought that was it. So he thought that him saying he didn't want another child was going to be the end of it. Yes. And then what happened? Well, 
One evening, she came into the living room and told him that she was four months pregnant. And Chris said to me, I was so shocked. My first thought, ironically, was, are you having an affair? But then, of course, you know, my brain is quite slow in these situations. And, of course, I thought, well, you don't have the eggs that can make you pregnant. Anyway, um, I slowly started to work through it. But then he remembered that she couldn't get pregnant naturally. So he worked back from what must have happened. And she had four months previously gone on what he had been told was a business trip. But actually, she had flown to Finland, forged his signature on the consent forms and had one of the embryos thawed and implanted and she became pregnant with their third child. So she had pitched up at the clinic, the same place that had told them that they needed to decide what to do about the embryo and said, actually, I do want them implanted. And here's a piece of paper with both our signatures on it to say that we're both happy with this. Exactly that. What happened when she told Chris what she'd done? He was really furious. He said to her, you had absolutely no right to do this. I didn't agree to this. How is this possible? He stormed out of the house. And I went out with a couple of mates, got drunk, and, you know, they both told me to leave her. But he told me it became really clear to him that he could not leave her because any child that was born would work out. Their parents had split up at precisely the time that they were born and would feel that it was their fault that their parents' marriage had imploded. He felt that he had a duty to stay with her for a few years at least uh, so this child wouldn't feel responsible for the end of their parents' marriage. And, and she was quite, quite far into being pregnant at this point. He felt that for the sake of his family, he had to stay with her. Now, this is a obviously a pretty unhappy situation, no matter what people determine they're going to do. What subsequently happened with Chris and Eva? They've ultimately got divorced. By the time their third child was two years old, they'd split up. Does Chris see the child? Yes, they share custody of all of their three children and he's still in touch with his ex-wife. He even said to me, Our friends here, you know, we have a lot of mutual friends. They're stunned at sort of how well it works. Um, amazing that two parents take equal responsibility and, you know, we take our roles and we work as a team. And, you know, that bit is true, but they don't see the dark underbelly. They have no idea of the kind of dark undercurrent behind why they split up and what happened in the making of their family. Why did you feel it was an important story? I know lots of people who've had IVF. I know how desperate you can be for a solution when what you really want is a baby. You don't want to think about things like, okay, what if we have embryos in storage and one of us dies? What if we break up when these embryos are in storage? What if one of us wants to have another baby and the other one doesn't? Of course, you don't want to have those conversations. You're just monofocused on there is a chance that I might actually be able to be pregnant with my own child or we might be able to have the family that we've always wanted. But you need to have those conversations because the technology makes extraordinary things possible and you need to be prepared for every eventuality. 
Now, as you suggested, that are ethical questions, there are moral questions, and clearly there are going to be some legal questions as well. So let's look at the bigger picture and look at the state of IVF in the UK right now. What what do the statistics tell us? I think around 20,000 babies are born after IVF treatment in the UK each year. It's becoming increasingly a, a very normal way of making families. It's mundane enough to be advertised on the tube. And Back in the early days of IVF, you'll remember it was quite common for there to be multiple births. And that's because many embryos would be implanted at the same time, thinking that would maximise the chances of one of those embryos sticking and, and, and a successful pregnancy. But now that happens a lot less often. It's quite common for there to be single embryo transfer. And freezing techniques are much, much better. Now, what's quite common is you'll go in for one round of IVF there will be several embryos and one embryo will be implanted and the rest will be uh, frozen. And so that if you decide to have a child at a later date, one of those frozen embryos will be thawed and implanted. If you look at the numbers, it's quite incredible. In 1991, 10% of embryo transfers were from frozen embryos, whereas in 2019, it was 41%. So it's really now the kind of standard way that we make families is you have kind of one round of IVF and then you freeze the remaining embryos. And from the couple's point of view, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Even if you're not using an egg donor, it's an extremely difficult process to collect the eggs. You have to have daily injections to stimulate your egg production. The eggs have to be harvested when you're sedated. It's a very difficult process. And so if you can just harvest the eggs and sperm one time and uh, create embryos that way and then put them in the freezer, that's much better for everyone. So the freezing technology has really saved an awful lot of people an awful lot of bother and hurt. Absolutely. But what it does is it it introduces this element of time that you can conceive embryos that are not gestated for maybe 10 years. A lot can happen in terms of the status of your relationship, the status of your health, where in the world you're living. A lot can happen during the time the embryos are in the freezer. Is it expensive? In this country, I think most people are entitled to several rounds of of IVF on the NHS, but it does depend on your age. It depends on whether or not you already have children. I think where people go private, it can be very expensive. And there's been a lot of scandals recently about IVF clinics suggesting that you need lots of things that you don't necessarily need, extra scans, extra procedures. And again, this is an area where it's incredibly emotionally difficult for couples. They are often at the end of their tether, having tried unsuccessfully for years to get pregnant naturally. So they're very vulnerable to feeling like they need to spend whatever they can Mm. and do whatever they can to maximise their chances. Now let's talk about consent. Chris's story took place in Sweden and the clinic Eva went to was in Finland. Let's talk about consent in the UK. How's that handled? It's very tightly regulated in the UK and in England and Wales, clinics have to be sure They have the consent of both parents when you go on to have fertility treatment. You would have to present yourself in the clinic in person if you're providing the the sperm and eggs. So when you make your first visit, you'd need to bring photo ID, which would need to be checked. And they would check your signature against the photo ID. Eva went back. Of course, this wasn't in the UK without Chris, but with his signature. Could that happen here in the UK? Yes, it could. There's no legal requirement that both parents have to be present. They are supposed to check your signature against the copies that they have to make sure that it's you that signed. Coming up, we look at another case. 
this time one that ended up in court. But first, a word from a colleague. I'm James Marriott, a columnist, book reviewer and podcast reviewer for The Times. It's my job to explain and contextualise our turbulent social and cultural landscape in a way that's as interesting, informative and as original as possible. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Jane, let me be clear. In Chris's case, despite the fact that he was obviously very angry and very frustrated, he never sought any compensation and never went public, still hasn't gone public, so to speak, but others have. Yes. So he told me that he's written many emails to the clinic that he's failed to send. He's never taken legal action against the clinic because as he sees it, he has nothing to gain. He might win a a few grand in compensation, but it would be at enormous cost to his family. And he does not want his children to know that his third child wasn't wanted. So he thought he had nothing to gain. But others have. And in fact, that's what interested me so much when Chris came to me with his story is when he told it to me, I recognised another story, a case that went to the the High Court in London in 2018. A man only known as ARB because it's the family courts where people are anonymised. He brought a legal case against a fertility clinic called IVF Hammersmith after his ex-wife, known as R, had forged his signature on some consent forms and got pregnant with their second child without his consent. He and his wife, when they were married, had had IVF treatment. They'd had a son and then they split up. And then she traced his signature in ballpoint pen on one of the consent forms and went back for treatment and became pregnant with their daughter, who was, by all accounts, a lovely, healthy little girl. And he wanted compensation for the clinic, one for the fact that he'd been a victim of fraud and two for the costs of upkeep for his child. I see. But the person who committed the fraud was the 
was the, the ex-wife. Yes, but the clinic had allowed his embryo to be implanted without his consent, so he wanted compensation for that. How much money was he looking for? Legal reports from some of the law firms involved in the case put it at a million pounds. He wanted a million pounds. And what was that million pounds for? I mean, his wounded feelings or was it for a practical reason? Well, the way that he wanted the court to assess it was the cost of her clothes, of giving her lifts, places, of taking her on holidays, the costs of having a daughter that he had never consented to having. Right, okay. (laughs) And what happened? He failed. He failed because, although in this country we do have something called wrongful birth, it tends to be used when people have a baby that they wouldn't have consented to having who has a disability. So it happens quite a lot when um, Down syndrome isn't detected in pregnancy and parents go on to have a baby who is disabled and they want help with the costs of, of bringing up a disabled child or a child who is born with disabilities that arise as a result of negligence in the delivery of the baby. It is part of law in this country that you can't claim compensation for a healthy child because it's impossible to kind of calculate the benefits, the joy that that child brings to you and offset it against the costs of clothing them, feeding them, taking them on holiday and all of the rest of it. And apparently there are lots of men who've had vasectomies have tried to use the courts in a similar way and all of those legal cases have failed in the past. Well, I'm not surprised really because on that basis any woman whose contraception had failed would have a case. I think the idea that there is a a particular amount of, of deception in cases like this and it is negligent of the clinics to have not discovered that the deception means it's a slightly different thing. So how many cases of these forgeries, forged IVF consent forms in the UK, do, do we actually know about? I only know about ARB versus IVF Hammersmith, but that's because it's the only one that hit the courts. There may be many other cases where people have, like Chris, just decided to go along with it and have not wanted to to make their situation public. But there have been quite a few other cases around the world, been reported by local press, so there may be many others. There was a recent case in Munich where a man wanted the clinic to pay for the child support of a son that he never consented to having from his ex-wife, who had actually forged his signature twice, and he was unsuccessful in, in his claim too. Has there been any pressure to, or in fact, has there been any change in the law as a result of these sorts of cases or the possibility of these sorts of cases? No. I mean, it is still the case that you don't have to be physically present to give your consent. Clinics have become aware that this might happen and they have made their procedures more stringent in terms of checking ID, verifying ID. But at the moment, even though ARB versus IVF Hammersmith made quite a few headlines, it didn't change anything in terms of how we regulate fertility treatment. But it's just one obvious thing that you could do. You, <laughs> I mean, the woman has to turn up in person clearly and so on. So why not make the person who is the, the donor of the sperm in this, in this case, the person who signed originally, why not make them turn up too? Yes, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I spoke to a lawyer, though, James Lawford Davis, who specialises in legal cases involving fertility treatment and embryos. And I I put that to him and he he made the point that actually this is a a doctor-patient relationship. 
which is supposed to be based on trust. It's an emotionally very fraught situation anyway. And if your default position is to assume that your, your patients are always lying to you, then that adds an extra layer of difficulty that you don't necessarily want to be there. So you shouldn't always have to be suspicious of your patients just because of these few cases um, that have, have come to light. Just to be clear, you don't think at the end of this that there is a legal change that is going to help here? I personally think it would help if both parents had to be in the clinic to sign the forms. And I don't think many parents would mind that. They wouldn't necessarily see it as an an insult to the doctor-patient relationship. But then again, I haven't had IVF to to conceive my children and I haven't had to go through the pain of, of using those clinics. But for me, I think... It's one of those things where it helps to be, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's in as neat a way as possible so everyone can be sure where they stand. Well, Jenny, as you said, you're you're a mum. And obviously, as a, as a parent, you've had discussions about having children, when to have children and so on. What does this story make you feel about that process and what's happened here? I haven't had IVF. I have had a lot of experience of, of baby loss and I know what it is like to desperately want something that feels like it comes so easily to everybody else. And so I can imagine having embryos in a freezer and knowing that your partner wanted them flushed away and it being so incredibly painful, this idea of, of, of them just being gone. But then you have to remember in all of this, this is not about having a baby. This is about creating a human being who will one day grow up and become an adult. And you have to be comfortable with the circumstances of their of their birth because nobody wants to exist knowing that one of their parents didn't want them to exist. And even if even if they never even even if they're not told, having that lingering in the background is not a healthy thing for a parent-child relationship. So as painful and fraught as it it might be, I think it is best for for the baby and for the adult that that baby becomes that they're wanted by by both parents. I was just thinking about this, you know, as a, a as a dad myself and looking over the case of Chris and one or two of the others that you've talked about. And I couldn't help that feeling that behind it all, the real problem here lies in the relationship between the husbands and the wives or the men and the women here, that they didn't want the same things and they never quite fully had the relationships that allowed them to resolve what it was that they wanted. And in the end, Chris couldn't really stop either having another child with somebody. His objection really was her having the other child with him. The problem in the end is not necessarily the technology or the, or the process, although the process is clearly at fault. The problem was that their relationship was in such a bad state that this could happen, that she could go and forge his signature. And he himself, actually, towards the end of our conversation, kind of conceded that, took his own share of responsibility. We both maybe didn't take the responsibility that we should have to deal with it up front. That if they had been communicating better... If when that letter from the clinic had come to him saying, you need to make a decision about what to do with the remaining embryos, if they had both replied then and there together and made a decision and got back to the clinic, then this would never have happened. And in the end, she did something that was really wrong. I mean, really, really wrong. But it was to some extent, you know, it takes two to tango. And maybe it could have been avoided if our relationship had been better. 
if we'd have had the right types of discussions. The kind of takeaway for me, having looked at this story, was it's about communication and having a healthy relationship and, and knowing from the outset what both of you want so that there isn't a kind of murky area where these bad things can happen. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Jenny Kleeman, investigative journalist and presenter on Times Radio's Weekend Breakfast Show. You can also read Jenny's journalism in The Sunday Times magazine or online. The producer today was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford. See you again soon. <laughs>